So tonight I want to talk about essentially uh, right view, but in a very pragmatic way. It's actually at the beginning of every retreat when I first start talking, I always end up talking about this. And I really tried to talk about something else tonight, but I just couldn't because this just feels so important to me, to my heart and to just to understanding what we're doing. So here we go. One very simple, very simple definition of meditation. (laughs) No, it's me moving. I have a friend I teach in Switzerland every year with a good friend, Fred von Allman. And he challenges me, you know, not to wave my hands around when I'm talking. And I am completely unable to do that. It's like I can't talk without doing that. That's what's making it rattle. Okay. Sayadaw Utejaniya described meditation once as, meditation is simply experiencing the mind and body directly from moment to moment with the right understanding. That's the little caveat at the end, with the right understanding. I mean, experiencing the mind and body directly moment to moment, as you know, also isn't that simple. But so what I want to talk about is what do we mean by right understanding, right view. (laughs) No, that really is too much. (laughs) Maybe I should try the other one, huh? I'm sorry. Okay. (laughs) How come this doesn't happen to the other guys? I don't really want to take up the time doing this because I have a lot to say. So right view, when we translate it that way, samaditi, it runs into our, our tendency to say right means wrong, I'm good, I'm bad, and then we you know, can get our backs up about it right away. And I'll actually move into that, that habit of our mind later on. But one thing the Buddha said about wise view, right view, and this kind of goes off of um, uh, Winnie's talk last night about the four right endeavors. So I do not see a single other thing so inclined to cause the arising of wholesome states not yet arisen, or if arisen, to cause wholesome states to further develop and increase as right view. For one with right view, wholesome states not yet arisen do arise, and if arisen, wholesome states are inclined to further develop and increase. And he goes through all the four right endeavors. I'm not going to go through that, but just the importance of right view. And the way I want to talk about that tonight is in a very pragmatic, simple way. What wise understanding, right understanding, can we bring to the, what attitude do we bring to our moment-to-moment mindfulness practice? 
So if you look in the suttas, in the discourses, there's a lot of information about right view, and it could seem as though you're talking about um, learning and coming to agree with a whole set of philosophical principles. It's not that, and I'm not going to go into that at all tonight. But the way I love to talk about right view, the attitude we bring to our meditation moment to moment, is it's not about philosophy or theory or believing anything. But uh, I actually really like the translation right view into English in terms of taking it quite literally as recognizing accurately what's occurring in the moment, in our mind, in our body. So tonight, just a little bit explore what does that mean, recognizing accurately, and what's in the way? I mean, why the heck don't we? recognize accurately, and why does that cause so much suffering? Okay, that's fast, but a little bit talk about it. What can I do? This is suffering. (laughs) And the right attitude is, it's like this. Without aversion, without clinging, then I can recognize accurately, is there something I can do about it? Apparently not. What I think I really love about the Buddha Dhamma and what I read about the Buddha is that despite the fact that uh, it can you know, be millions of very abstruse and precise theories and philosophical concepts and things to learn and list and all of that, at the core, it seems the Buddha was really concerned with the salient points, facts of our life. Why are we unhappy? Why do we suffer from dis-ease, and what will free us from that? And he just wouldn't get sidetracked into discussions about many fascinating things that he said don't really lead to uh, our own understanding of that. And so what also is really clear that everything he said, and what I'm saying tonight, too, is not about believe this, and this will free us, because belief won't do it may you know, incline us to lend an ear to listen. But the very famous uh, kind of comment saying of the Buddha, ehipasiko in Pali, which means you too, come and see. Come and look. Inquire for yourself. Investigate for yourself. So he's saying, turn our attention to what's going on in this moment, in our experience, in our mind, in our body, so-called internal, so-called external and see what's really going on. This is really the place where we discover source of dis-ease, the source of freedom from that dis-ease, the seeds of both of which rising in our own mind and heart stream here and now. Interesting about the Buddha, the so-called peaceful one, that after his awakening, complete awakening, he woke up into the same world that he was living in before, right? It was, the, war, the world was still filled with war, injustice, inequality, violence, greed, 
hatred, prejudice. The world didn't change. And he kept on living in that world and engaging in that world. But the way, I mean, from what I can understand from reading, okay, I'm not at all claiming to know how the Buddha's mind and heart was. But from what he said, from what we can see, that what changes is the understanding of what's occurring in one's experience, the understanding of what we really are, what experience really is. And that shift of perspective, that shift of recognition, then of course changes how we understand, how we respond, how we relate to whatever's going on in the world. And this is the suffering that the Buddha says we can free ourselves from. We can't change the whole external world. But Buddhism also isn't about pacifism. You don't try to change anything. But it's about where can we start? Where does suffering begin? Where does it end in our own experience? The seeds are in our own mind and heart. So what changes how we recognize and how we respond internally and externally? An example is when um, Dr. Martin Luther King said, you know, nonviolence means you not only refuse to shoot a person, you also refuse to hate a person. So where we start is in the recognized, not even refusing to hate a person, but the clear recognition that hatred and greed and desire don't make any sense when we're recognizing things accurately. So it's not like we have to somehow, you know, get out the the pick and the shovel and root out every wanting that's arising in your mind. Have you tried that? (laughs) Somehow another one seems to find a little hole to come in (laughs) because it's the understanding, the recognition. So what I love about uh, right view is that when we recognize accurately the responses that lead to our habits of desire, our habits of clinging and aversion and confusion and me, 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 me. Have you noticed that one? That what leads to those habits, it just stops arising. It's like they're abandoned, but it's not abandoned by an act of will. The steadiness of clear seeing, the steadiness of clear recognition, mindfulness, naturally is a condition for the arising of wisdom of Panya, which is the accurate recognition. It's like I think I said the other night, it's just so cool. And so one phrase that's often used to describe clear seeing, clear recognition, Bhante used it the other night, yata bhuta jnana dasana, translated in the the old translations into English, um, knowledge and vision of things as they are. But several friends recently have told me, friends who know Polly a lot better than I, that a much more accurate recognition is knowledge and vision of things as they have come to be in this moment. Now, do you get a sense of the different feeling between things as they are? Boom, things, solid, are, not changing. That's kind of how we normally look at things. Things as they have come to be, to me, 
gives me much more a sense of the uh, causes and conditions all coming together that lead to, that bring us to this moment as it has come to be right now, and it's still in flux, right? You get a sense, I do, a sense of the, the movement, of the interweaving of all the conditions giving rise to this moment, which is a cause and condition for giving rise to the next moment. Things as they have come to be. It, it keeps me from landing in solidity. So for example, very simple. If you think about well, all the causes and conditions that you even know of, and we don't know of a lot of them, that have come together to allow you to be sitting here right now. How many? You know, we can start with all the obvious ones, whichever ones are obvious to you. You know, you're healthy somewhere back there in some other world that you wish you didn't know, you decided to come here. And here you are, and you made all those decisions, and the people that support you, and the money to come, and you're healthy enough, and the obvious ones. But then there's all the other ones that go back to just the fact that we're alive, that your parents got together, right? Or you wouldn't even be here. That there's food to eat. And where does the food come? From the farmers who grow the food. And how did the farmers grow their food? And what families support the farmers? And how did the food get here? And what about so the, the people who drive the trucks and drive the trains? And then, of course, we're using gasoline. So whether we like those oil fields or not up in Canada, they probably had something to do with the fact that we're sitting here. Because even if you walked, unless you grew the food and you didn't use any fertilizer whatsoever, probably, and anyway, we're all connected to everything. If you keep going, where can you stop? So to me, it goes back to the Big Bang, which, by the way, I was <laughs> never have enough to say without going into that. <laughs> I'm going to get a whole sidetrack there. <laughs> it was interesting, but completely irrelevant. <laughs> yeah, well, you don't know. <laughs> OK, you're talking about it. I was reading this book by Bill Bryson, who was <laughs> about science. And he, anyway, long story short, he's talking about the static on TV, and that some of that static is actually generated from the cosmic rays that came from the Big Bang. So if you're really bored and you watch the static on the TV, someplace you're seeing the universe as we know it coming into existence. Okay, that's kind of far out. <laughs> well, that's a little concept. But things as they have come to be, where do we stop? It takes away the solidity. Start to experience just a little bit shake up of the views or the, that we don't even know, maybe, are in the background coloring our perception. Bhante talked about the distortions of perception. This is really the key to why we don't recognize accurately. And we don't recognize the distortions. But when we see this as they've come to be, this sense of, you can never just stop and say, now it's this, separate from anything else. Like a time-lapse you know, movie of a bulb growing into a, a plant, and there's the stem and the leaves and the flower, and then the flower wilts and drops off and goes back to the earth and turns into earth. And if you kept watching that, where could you stop it at any time and say, this stem is separate from the bulb, is separate from now it's just stem, now it's just flower? 
You know, it's like that. There's no kind of resting place, which we hate when we want one. But when it's just, this is how it is in this moment, a whole lot of uh, our sense of uh, confusion and distortion goes away. So this is really at, at the heart of awakening, or awakening <laughs> from confusion, from dis-ease. The heart isn't about moving into some other plane floating off on a cloud somewhere. It's really at the most profound level, it's a, a fundamental shift of perception, a fundamental shift of how we recognize nature of reality in a moment, just in a moment. And how we recognize affects how we think and describe, respond and react. It's at the heart of everything. And we can see this even in, in a little moment when you have what we call an insight, right? An insight can be, can be uh, personal, psychological. It can be about something that's going on in the practice. But when we see this shift from being caught in the meanest, the taking it so personally, to seeing just this cause and effect process, it's just nature. You know, it's just cause, these particular causes lead to this condition in this moment. And wishing this moment were different. Oh, has anyone ever wished this moment were different? How useful is that? How can this moment be different? It's impossible. As Byron Katie, you know, that teacher in, in California, she said, you know, when you fight with reality, you lose. This moment is this moment. Can't be different. But when we just shift to see causes and conditions, the personal, taking it so personally, and our, then our confused reactions just pop away. Simple example, of, a few of you have given examples like this. Sitting, for example, and there's a lot of pain wherever in the body. And then sitting with the pain, however you're particularly reacting, responding to it, and then recognizing a lot of aversion in the mind, whichever form that aversion takes, whether it's you know, outward hatred, inward judgment, just basic, pure, unadulterated aversion. But just you know, everything's getting worse and worse and tighter and tighter. And it's just either a sense of what's wrong with me. If I could do it right, it would go away. Or this didn't give this stupid kind of 45 minutes to sitting, I wouldn't hurt, whatever. We're all wrapped up in it, you know, in the reactions. And then there's a moment where you see, oh, the pain arising is the natural, just natural. If the body sits in a position for some amount of time without moving, pain's going to arise. And the amount of time changes all the time, depending on the conditions of our body at that particular moment. It's just nature. There's nothing personal in it. And then, just seeing that, the personal goes out often. It's like, oh, the aversion is a completely extra and actually unnecessary response. I mean, this isn't something we're telling ourselves, oh, you're bad, this is unnecessary. It's like we just see, oh, this is how it is. Unpleasant physical experience. The aversion is not a necessary response to that. Boom, just can, sometimes the whole bubble just bursts. And it's just what it is. Now, this isn't always what we might think it's going to be like. 
to have insight. Usually it's like the bubble bursts, the pain goes away, the mind is really filled with light and bliss, and then we think, oh, I got it. And that, sometimes I feel so much compassion when someone comes in and says, you know, it's their second or third retreat, and their first retreat, they had the great retreat, filled with light, filled with bliss. All this wonderful stuff happened. I think, oh, I'm so sad for you, because now you're going to spend God knows how long trying to get that back and never believing that this other stuff going on is actually where we're going to learn the seeds of confusion and the seeds of peace. None of you believed that, did you? But it's true. So that's why it, it is so fascinating, but also important to recognize what are the, just to even see if there's distortions, assumptions really, ideas in the back of our mind about what's good, what's bad, what's right, what's wrong, or just how we interpret experience without even recognizing that we're interpreting. Because it's so familiar, we, we don't even know it's a view. You know, we just think, well, this is just how it is. So the classic... Um, I just want to read from Dingo Kensi, the classic, uh, one of the classic descriptions of how we keep getting caught. As the Buddha said when he first woke up and wasn't so inclined to teach, and as Bonnie mentioned, he said, oh, there are some beings with little dust on their eyes, you know, a little distortion, not so much. And he was really moved by compassion, it said, because when he looked around, he saw everyone wants to be happy. We all share that. And in our confusion, in our not really understanding what the potential is, what true freedom from dis-ease is, in beings' efforts to be happy, they keep on doing just the thing that keeps them spinning in confusion, in suffering. And so that moved him to compassion, it is said. So the classic description of this is samsara, right? Samsara that seemingly endless cycle of leaning into wanting, becoming, getting, losing, the next, the next, the next. Whether you just talk about it in this one life, whether we talk about it as over lifetimes. But it's plenty enough to talk about it in this life to get the sense. You heard the, the phrase samsara, right? Most of you. So Dingo Kensi Rinpoche describes it. He, he describes it as a form of renunciation which coming off of Bonte's talk the other night, I like it. He talks about renunciation, the foundation, the root of our path, implies this, not only the strong wish to free oneself from life's immediate sorrows, but more profoundly, the wish to free oneself from the seemingly unending cycle of samsara, which a heartfelt weariness and disillusionment with the endless quest for gratification, approval, profit, and status. Let's read that again. Does it resonate at all? The kind of the uh, a heartfelt weariness and disillusionment that may or may not resonate, but the endless quest for gratification, approval, profit, and status. And I'm 
I mean, I I'm projecting some. Of course, I don't know how you all feel. But the, the quest for gratification, status, approval, I'm assuming most of us would say, yeah, you can see how that certainly is a source of suffering, and we'd like to abandon it. But samsara shows up on an even much more subtle level. That's really what I want to talk about tonight, the habits that come in and how we're perceiving moment to moment here with our mindfulness practice. So that can be kind of a challenging um, teaching, this idea of renouncing the quest for gratification. We might say, okay, approval and all that, don't need that, but gratification, I didn't really sign up not to have any more gratification, you know. But what are we talking about with that? He's not saying it's bad, but futile. How does it keep us? What keeps us on this path, even when intellectually we know about it? So just some ways of describing it. That leaning forward, you know, that, that sense that the next, when Guy talked about sense desire, but it's not just with sense desire, that this next thing will make me happy. And that happiness and gratification and peace is going to come from just getting that thing that we lack. You get a sense of how it, it, it keeps us off balance. It kind of keeps us believing that yearning. You know, as Guy said, we even almost misinterpret that yearning as a kind of pleasantness, as a kind of, it's comfortable anyway, because it's so familiar, you know? Even though it keeps us off balance, this sense of insufficiency, of I'm not enough, this moment isn't enough. Even when things are pretty good, could it always just be a little bit better? There's a Tibetan saying that uh, describes uh, samsara as the urge to correct. Look at that in your practice. This what's happening now. That's the steadiness of mindfulness. And just, just could be a little bit clearer, a little bit steadier, whatever. That little movement is the movement out of peace into the whole world of wanting and becoming and losing and wanting and becoming and losing. So it keeps our attention focused outward on the next gratification. It keeps us focused on the object, on the thing. And what we don't see is the vastness, the connectedness, the non-separation. We just see this thing is going to be good, it's going to be bad, it's all about me and gratification and getting everything copacetic. We can't recognize accurately what's really going on because we're not even really looking at what's really going on. The perception is colored by this wanting, by this view of what we don't even recognize. Because without our starting to turn awareness onto our experience, we don't even know if there's any other option. That's what's so sad. We don't know there's any other option. Awareness practice is kind of like a shift to the bigger picture. And we can see, you know, when we're wanting um, success, or we're, the samsara is keeping us trying to get a new thing, a new thing, and we can see we're not getting it, that 
is a little more obvious that it's suffering, although we forget and go for the next new thing. But what's even more, to me, the most insidious aspect is that what Guy mentioned where we, we confuse the yearning, this moving, this always trying to have some kind of pleasant feeling. We confuse that with pleasure, with happiness. And because we don't turn around and look at the experience, we just keep looking to the next thing we may not even recognize. I mean, this makes us sound like doofuses, I know. But so let me give you a personal example, which will make me sound like a, a doofus, but that's okay. I noticed a couple of years ago, I think this is, a, for me, it was a great um, description of samsara because if we knew it was suffering, if we knew it was making us unhappy, we'd be motivated to stop. But we think it's making us happy. So that's where it's so insidious. So for some reason, I'm a big fan of watching professional men's tennis, which is odd since I'm the most unathletic person you could ever meet. Um, but I am. Anyway, and so I, I, I watch it. I get really involved. Like, and it's the only sport I watch. When I've talked about this before, people always come up to me about all their other sports. Yeah, I really know what you mean. I could never understand sports until I started watching. Anyway, I don't do it to make myself miserable. I do it because I find it, I think it's enjoyable. I think it's enhancing the quality of my life. You know? <laughs> Obviously, I have a lot of choice what to do with my time and my life. And so, so I hadn't really explored it until uh, two summers ago. So, of course, you know, you have certain, I have certain people that I most appreciate watching. I try to put it in neutral language. And so, me and 15, other million, 15 million other people enjoy watching the same person, so I'm hardly you know, unique or creative about it. But anyway, so two years ago, this guy was, you know, he's like one of the best. It depends who you talk to. And <laughs> if you're Swiss, he's the best. And anyway, so two years ago, he was a about to win Wimbledon, which is like the most prestigious of all the tournaments. And it would, have, it would have been amazing if he did, because it would have been at his age, put him back to number one and all this stuff, all this series of the best possible it could be, right? And so that happened. So it was the best possible it could be, right? And still, and so it happens, and you're like so happy. For how long? It's like a day. Two days, not every moment of a day, for sure. And then? It's over because the Olympics are coming. It's like all gone. You have to go through the whole thing all over again. And then, by the way, I started noticing how, what's actually going on when I'm watching a tennis match, Am I, when this guy's playing. Am I actually enjoying it? No, it's actually, it's torment. <laughs> you can ask my friends who've watched me watch. I mean, uh, <laughs> really torment. Sometimes, you know, if it's a tie in the force that I have to leave and go take a walk. I just can't bear it. Why? I don't even know the guy. I probably wouldn't like him. You know, what? So that's a whole other thing. What is this all about? It's a fascinating, you know, look at the human psyche. But anyway, I'm doing it right because I think it's enhancing the quality of my life. 
I'm doing it because I think I'm enjoying it. And I'm a nervous wreck. And I hate being nervous. I dislike suspense. You know, I'm watching it all for the occasional amazing shot, which is like a tenth of a second. Wow, that's amazing. Then it's gone. At least they replay. You get it twice. It's over. So then I started to look, wow, what am I putting myself through? So I haven't actually completely stopped, I have to say. <laughs> but with, with steady awareness, you can't hide from yourself anymore. So it's, it's not quite as totally, I can't really pretend that it's completely pleasant. It's clear to me that it's samsara. And to me, I, I love that as an example because with the big suffering stuff, you know, that's not a hard sell. But with this, it is. And it's not like someone telling me it's bad. It's just the steadiness of awareness to what's actually going on in my mind and body, in my, in my perceptions, without any judgment. I wasn't trying to say I'm bad or good, just what's really going on here. Like, whoa, whoa, it's really different from my idea of it. So this is where I think um, Samsara continues to seduce us. Because until we know or trust really deeply in our heart from our own experience that there's another way of relating to experience that offers a different way of peace and happiness, until we know that for ourselves, we don't know any other option. And this may you know, be a little bit of a simple example but when I, I can get quite discouraged sometimes just looking at how this, this quest for pleasant experience, basically, where it gets us in the world. I'm not going to go into a whole bunch of heavy stuff, which I could do, but I was listening to the BBC this morning. I always like to listen. There's always something interesting about how the world is. So today... There's one thing, and this was like so, oh yeah, this is where samsara takes us, this quest for, for gratification, this quest for a more interesting life. So they're saying today, I can't find my sheet, but they're saying today was the, um, the, the fifth anniversary. Oh, here it is. Grand Theft Auto V, which is a video game. I guess you guys probably know that. I'm completely ignorant of video games. So they were describing, this is very serious on the BBC. Grand Theft Auto V was released today. Apparently it's a British product. And um, they were interviewing the, the woman who was the announcer, interviewing all these guys, not like kids going, oh, awesome, you know, but interviewing very serious um, kind of video game experts. I have no idea what makes somebody a video game expert, but it was, you know, all these like serious professorial types they were interviewing about it. They're talking about how it's one of the crowning achievements of um, creativity, of uh, very artistic visual quality, satirical humor. They're going on and on about it, you know. And apparently it's one of the most popular video games of this generation. And so the woman, the, the newscaster, she goes, but is it ultra-violent? And they played some clips of some of the things that are incredibly violent, you know, misanthropic. And these guys go, 
Yeah, misanthropic. Okay, I looked up misanthropy. Here's the definition. Hatred, dislike, or distrust of humankind. So these experts are going, yeah, okay, it's misanthropic. <laughs> like, so what? But it's creative, you know? And she said, but isn't it dangerous? And, no, dangerous. Sure, it's violent, but you don't have to do violence. There's other really cool things you can do in the game, too. You don't have to do violent stuff. You have a choice. And the misanthropy, that's just, you know, a side. And they're going on about how amazingly creative and wonderful this is. Oh, wow, you know? Okay, easy for me. I'm not sucked up into that. Someone else could say that about tennis, I grant you. But I don't think it's really quite the same. But just to see where we go, and actually what was more shocking to me wasn't the game or how they described it, but these really serious professor types completely jumping over the violence and the, the hatred of humankind. Is that, well, that doesn't matter. That doesn't make it dangerous. Never mind if 135 million people are buying this thing. You know, what, what's getting put into the minds of all of us? So we can't do anything at that level about what other people choose to put in their minds and how they choose to look at what's coloring our perceptions. But we can do that for ourselves. That's what we are doing here. So the classic way, of course, that the Buddha describes one of the, the habits of misperception that we get into, uh, and you all know this. This is nothing you don't know. But I just read it again from the sutta because it always uh, deeply touches me. Is how, you know how the Buddha describes all of our experience, the all, is simply kind of rotating six sense experiences. Has someone said that here? Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching with the body, and the mental world of thinking and emotions, formations. That's all that's happening over and over and over. As Joseph says, 17 billion times in a moment, fast. But that's it. And then we just construct all these you know, explanations and worlds out of it. So these are happening over and over and over. And what we're really good at practicing is something comes, a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste. And we have, it comes together with that. Um, our minds feel it very subtly as being kind of pleasant or kind of unpleasant or neither pleasant or unpleasant. And this is something we often don't notice. And we'll talk about that more in the instructions in a few days. But the, the net effect, and just in a general going through our day simply, is we really practice as things come up. If it's pleasant, we like it, or we think it's good, or we don't even know we like it, but there's the leaning. If it's unpleasant, it's assessed as you know off, bad, wrong, got to be fixed, something. If it's neither pleasant or unpleasant, it's either OK or we don't really notice. It doesn't mean much about me, so it's not very interesting. right? So we practice this. We've practiced this our whole life. It's not bad or good, but it's so comfortable, so familiar, so, so we feel so, so how it is, that this becomes the, the lens through which, when we're not aware of it, we assess and evaluate experience, right? So if it's on the pleasant 
end of things, it tends to be seen as acceptable or good or going in the right direction or whatever, you know. Even if we don't even get into clinging, but just kind of, you know, the bliss states, very few people come and say, it can happen when your mind's working, but very few people come and say, you know, my practice really stinks. I sit down, the mind gets calm, and bliss arises. I'm really having a problem with this. Very few until they, you know, the unpleasant, just subtly unpleasant. But that becomes the lens through which we evaluate so much of experience. Good, bad, it's bad, it's wrong, I'm wrong, it shouldn't be happening, whatever. And so this is, again, we're right back in that, that cycle of samsara to get rid of the unpleasant and get more of the pleasant. But not only just to feel good, but because the, the, the unexamined deep belief is that really pleasant is the best we can do as human beings, that this is where freedom and happiness lies. But we don't say that to ourselves. That sounds rather simplistic. And I'm sitting here blabbing this, telling it to you, and I've said it a million times, and I look at it in myself, and I still get amazed. When I'm, even when my mind's in a fairly present, subtle state, and I, and I start to feel I'm kind of glitching, on, caught up on something, What's, you know, and I sit and look at it, and go, oh, wow, holding on to the pleasant again. Not just holding, but thinking the pleasant is right, and unpleasant is wrong. Let's just call it that way. And then we get into struggle with it. Here's the Buddha. Now, this is the part that always is very poignant to me. The obvious, he talks about an untaught worldling, which is a a word, putajana in Pali, when he feels a, a painful bodily feeling, he or she worries and grieves, laments, beats her breast, weeps, and is distraught. So she thus experiences two kinds of unpleasant feeling, bodily and mental, right? Have you noticed that? It's as if, if you were pierced by a dart and following the, second, the first being hit by a dart, you shoot yourself with a second dart. My knee hurts. I'm so bad. I'm so awful. It's so wrong. Okay, the two darts. What does an, an awakened person do? They experience one sort of bodily, physical, unpleasant feeling, and that's all. Space around it. So, but this is what unawakened people, what we don't, when we don't look. Having been touched by a painful feeling, he resists it and resents it, right? We pull away, we push away. And under the impact of that painful feeling, one then proceeds to enjoy sensual happiness. Why? Because an untaught whirling does not know of any other escape from painful feelings except the enjoyment of sensual happiness. This is what I, I find this so poignant. We don't know of any other escape from painful or unpleasant feelings except to go grab some pleasant feeling somewhere. Can you relate to that at all? Nothing is bad. It's just that if that's the only way we know. If we don't know that there's a path, if we don't know that the real 
freedom of our mind and heart doesn't mean we have to get away from all unpleasant feelings because it's impossible. You know, but that there's a peace, that there's an ease that allows our heart and mind to rest just fully in this moment. Pleasant moment, unpleasant moment, neither pleasant nor unpleasant moment. Fully, without resistance, without clinging, without making up a whole story about what it means about me. It's just this. You get a sense of how much ease and painful feeling in my knee. We're picking simple stuff, but it's also very with our complex um, personality habits and our deep-seated tendencies towards self-hatred or blame or shame. Is all of these brought about by understandable causes and conditions arising in this moment we can understand the causes and conditions. So, you know, they're valid. Arising in this moment, the arising is extremely unpleasant, scary. Whether we then turn that unpleasantness back on ourselves with more blame, or whether we turn the aversion outward on the world, either way, we're in the spinning, spinning of more wanting, more aversion back in the futility of samsara. And that moment of, okay. Pain is like this. Self-hatred feels like this. Ajahn Sumedho uses that languaging a lot, and I found it enormously helpful. I'm all caught up in some story, and, you know, and I think I'm being mindful. I'm naming every thought. I'm looking at all this stuff, but I'm, I'm missing the big picture, the giant fire that's coloring my whole uh, mind that's paying attention, which is the Pali word for aversion is dosa. I like it. Short sweet, clear, colors a lot of territory, and I don't get so caught up in the story. So I'm going, aversion to myself, that's based on my past conditioning, you know, and that's loneliness, that's the alien. I see the thought, I see the Dosa. Dosa is like this. Oh, so that moment, it's not, it's unpleasant. Awareness can just totally be there without needing to move away, without needing an explanation, without needing to do anything, but open, present, touching it with kindness. Or a really beautiful, pleasant experience, same thing. Wow, bliss is like this. No big story about me, no big explanation, no going in, no pulling away. In a sense of the ease between, oh, my knee, and what's going to happen, and like Bonte was talking about the hospital, and I'll never walk, and what about the past, and what about the future, and me, me, me. Just, oh, burning is like this. You actually feel the burning more clearly, but that's okay. I really feel, I mean, I've experienced this so many times. This is my daily life, too. I'm not just talking about sitting on the cushion, particularly with complicated mental psychological patterns. Like for me, self-hatred is a big pattern. And I know all, maybe not all, a lot of the past history, personal, familial, society, conditions that have given rise to this pattern in my particular individual psyche. And then I recognize that this particular individual pattern is also representative of, I'm not the only person in the world who experiences that, I'm pretty sure. And when I'm fighting it, or trying to understand it, or trying to do something about it, or trying to own it, I'm still subtly caught in that. It's unpleasant, and it's bad. It's wrong. Like, oh, 
Self-hatred feels like this. There's this feeling of complete relief that comes when I know actually my full awareness has just landed in what's really happening with no more contentiousness, non-contention with reality. In this moment, it feels like this. Ah, there's an ease that comes. That is what the Buddha is saying for one who doesn't have a path. It would never believe what? A cleaner, a more sure escape from unpleasant feeling is just to open into what's happening now with simple, pure mindfulness, without assessment, without self-reference, without judging. Just it's what it is. You know? But if we don't do that, he says, we come, we come to the underlying tendency to lust for pleasant feelings comes to be a habit in a mind. And then the tendency to resist unpleasant comes to be a habit in the mind. And the tendency, this is my language, to have no clue about the unpleasant becomes a habit in the mind. Habit because that's what we do over and over. That's all. It's just because it's what we do. And so I feel so grateful just to know that there's another possibility. You know, a lot of the time my mind goes back in the habit. But even recognizing the habit is, again, a moment of awareness. Oh, yeah, I'm really caught in wanting. feels like this. So the mindfulness, what it does, the steadiness of mindfulness that we're trying to cultivate here, this moment after moment after moment, it's first it's that bare attention, as I just described, just learning how to bring uh, a mind that's, that's just in that moment. As Tejaniya says, with the right understanding, meeting what's happening now, just as it is without, without judging it, pleasant, good, unpleasant, bad, neutral, who cares? Just as it is. Just as it is. And the steadiness of that, it's a shift from generally we're so engrossed in the object. And this is another thing samsara does. Get this, get rid of that, me, this, that, that we don't see the big picture. So with our steadiness of mindfulness, of awareness, what we really is happening is we're shifting from entrancement with object to seeing the process. How's the mind working? How is confusion and suffering arising in this moment? How is it dissipating? How is it being abandoned? How does it not arise in this moment? How does wholesomeness arise? So we're really getting more interested in that. So when we say often, you know, awareness... Um, Ajahn Sumedho has this line, awareness is the point that includes, meaning it's just at this moment, but in this moment it includes everything, anything. Or the way I say is awareness doesn't care, meaning awareness doesn't have preference. It's not that you can be aware of something that's so horrible it's going to damage awareness. can't happen. We can forget about awareness, but once you remember again, Does awareness seem kind of ragged? Does it seem like it got a little bit worn out? Does it seem like somehow it got all dirty? You know, it's like, no, awareness is just pure and vivid and clean, just always. When we again remember a moment of mindfulness, here it is. So it's sort of like, the way I think of it is that for me, it's like the love of awareness or the trust in awareness gradually becomes, in, in, in my habits of my mind and heart, 
that becomes stronger or more reliable, more trustworthy than the love or trust in the search for pleasure. As long as my comfort, my love, my trust, my refuge, and most even unconsciously, is in pleasure, if that's where I find my comfort, subtly in the big stress moments, that's where it's going to go. But more and more, we start to feel, we start to really experience just those little moments. Notice them, those little moments that are so freeing when it's just the awareness of something pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, either one. And ah, just that ease when that whole construction of me and good and bad and this and that and what did they say and what do I mean and what's going to happen, ah, burning. Just notice the peace, the freedom, the space that comes from that. Because noticing these wholesome moments also reinforces, you know, the trust, the confidence, your own confidence from your own experience. That's the only place it can ever really come from. So in recognizing process, rather than just caught an object. Let me give you a couple of examples. One uh, very simple one that I like from, again, from Tejaniya. He said, uh, very simple. This isn't even meditation kind of a person. Someone knows a car is passing, right? You're aware that a car is passing. He says, is this a meditative awareness? And he says, no, anyone knows a car is passing. A dog knows a car is passing. You know, what's the difference? What would make it um, where we're aware of process, meditative awareness? So his way of saying it is that, how do you know you are aware that a car is passing? What do you are aware of is actually happening? So you would know if there's the sense, if there's experience of hearing, if there's the experience of seeing, and then be aware of the mental process and the sense of hearing, maybe the perception of car or the mental image of car. You get a sense of kind of really recognizing the process that's happening versus, oh, a car is passing and we don't really look at it. Do you get a sense of what that means? And to me, it's, it's a lot more interesting, you know. Oh, a car is passing. What was really happening just then? Because there's only those six things. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, sensing with the body, or mental constructs. Another way, just quick, of how, how these, these habits the Buddha talked about in the dart of aversion to the unpleasant, clinging to the pleasant, not noticing the neutral, how they come to distort perception. Starting to explore that is again also moving into process. So I think, I think I said the other night, but for instance, looking when there's real greed in the mind, that real tanha thirst, you know, that leaning forward, as Guy said, focus on the thirst. But notice, notice the effect in the mind, how it kind of narrows and limits our perception. And that what we perceive, if we're perceiving the thing we want, the Tibetans have a saying that wanting puts feathers on the object. You know, it makes it look so much more attractive. You know, if you see it later and the wanting's gone, you think, huh? You ever buy something, like buy something to wear and you get it home and you go, what was I thinking, you know? Or an example I often give, I was walking in the desert in Yucca Valley a few years ago. And I love it there, just the 
there's a few animals and the, the yuck, the, the uh, Joshua trees and the space and the clarity. I just love walking in the desert. And I was one morning walking there. And the thought came through my mind, maybe I'll see a tortoise. You know, they have these large land tortoises. They're few. You don't see them very often. And I was quite happy until that thought came, which could have just come and gone. The thought itself is not a problem. But the clinging, ah, oh, that thought was pleasant and glom on. Yeah, maybe I'll see a tortoise. And then I didn't recognize till I got home that the rest of the walk was, where's a tortoise? Where's a tortoise? And all this other, not tortoise, not tortoise, not tortoise. And just everything I would look at, all I wanted was the tortoise. And nothing else counted. That's what wanting does. It shuts us out. You know, It really narrows and limits and measures the mind. Aversion, the same thing. The pushing away of what we don't like. But have you noticed that when something's occurring that you don't like and you push it away, somehow it seems to expand and take over the world? Is there a sound in here you've heard that, you, that really you don't like? Yeah. And can your mind just go, OK, one sound and pay attention to something else? Oh, no. It's married to that sound. I mean, Thich Nhat Hanh has a great example of if you have one little rough tooth, can you keep your tongue off that? No, the rest of your teeth are fine. You're not running your tongue over your teeth all day. That one rough tooth, forget about it. And then the aversion gets stronger, and you feel the tooth, which makes the aversion stronger. And then the aversion completely colors everything. And then if some poor soul walks in front of you while you're just filled with this aversion over this rough tooth, they're like, I can't believe, you know, well, they're doing whatever judgment comes out. And then you think, what's the matter with me judging? I'm so horrible. I'm so. And the aversion is just coloring everything. Can you relate to that at all, or am I the only one? And until we see it, we don't know. When we see it, oh, aversion is like this. I'm serious. It's not like every moment that it's like that, but it can really be, oh, aversion, I'm so glad to see it, really. And because once we see it, we can feel it. Aversion's unpleasant. So it's the same thing. We don't want to be with it because it's unpleasant. You can feel it. You can relax into it. So you don't have to, as Pema Chodron says, we don't have to spend our life walking around tensed up as if we're sitting in a dentist's chair waiting for the next unpleasant experience to hit. It's just like this. I haven't yet managed to do that in the dentist's chair, but I think about it. And the third, the third, the neutral, is two things. One is, of course, it's all about me. This is really the third delusion. And this is so much fun, really. It's really fun to notice if you don't take it so personally. And it isn't personal. Every single person here, unless one of you is completely liberated, and I don't know, maybe you are. But otherwise, we're all sitting here, and so much of what happens, whatever it is, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, never mind thinking, how many degrees does it take to come back to me? You know, degrees of separation, six degrees. I would say probably not even one degree of separation, right? Somebody walks by, oh, they're walking better than me. Somebody has a pair of shoes. I'd like to have a pair of shoes like that. Somebody makes a noise or you make a noise. What's everyone thinking about me? You know, just, it's amazing. Oh, the fall is so lovely, and I'm so lucky to be here in it. You know? Just to, 
just to notice this, not to judge it, because that's more, I shouldn't be thinking about me, because I should be more enlightened than to think about me. It's like, forget about it. It's going to happen. But it isn't personal. Just notice it. It's really fun. And then it's not personal. You say, how? Count? No, don't count it. But <laughs> just. And then the last thing I want to say, the other way we get lost in delusion is, and this is one of the reasons it's so hard to maintain, I think, the steadiness of awareness. Because so much of our experience is just simply mundane, repetitive experience. Why do you get bored with walking? You know, we're waiting for something worth paying attention to to happen. Why do we kind of zone out brushing our teeth? It's not really, you know, okay, brush the teeth, you know, big deal. But when's the insight going to come? You know? How much of our experience is just this moment again and again and again? You know, how many times do we get out of bed and brush our teeth and go to pee and put on our socks? You know, every day. But every moment's different. And so this kind of glossing over, dulling out with the mundane, waiting for something worth paying attention to to get an insight from, is again the same thing as being caught in samsara. So just wake it up in this moment with the simplicity of awareness. So I'll just end with a quote from Deepama, this little Indian lady who was really an amazing, amazing yogi, just filled with metta and concentration, basically. (laughs) She was amazing. But anyway, there is so much sameness, sameness in ordinary life. We are always experiencing everything through the same set of lenses. But when greed, hatred, and delusion are not present, you see everything fresh and new all the time. Every moment is new. Life was dull before. Now, every day, every moment is full of taste and zest. So let's just sit quietly with taste and zest. Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.